0: Thank you. Everyone, This is Shannon Morgan, and you're listening to episode 13 of Sound Mind, a place to openly discuss the struggles in our minds, including mental health, trauma, addiction, and more. I'm not a counselor, and this podcast is not meant to replace professional therapy. More like somewhere you can go to find connection and learn how other people's experiences can aid in your own journey. Speaking of which, I work in the field of behavioral health as a peer and youth support specialist. Working with both adults and children, I share my lived experience with mental illness, trauma, and addiction in order to connect with clients and help them see that they are not alone, helping them to share their own story, set goals, build hope, and live more self-directed, purpose-filled lives. And that is the spirit I'm wanting to bring to the show. The website for Sound Mind is soundmindpodcast.com. There you'll find social networks, learn more about guests, and where you can leave me a comment or send me an email. And I would love to hear from you, especially if you'd like to be a guest in the show or you have a reaction to an episode. Now, on to today's guests. Rachel Marie Lamar works full time as a stay at home mom to a two year old. She is also an actress and aspiring writer who has worked professionally on feature films and short films. Rachel is still working to discover where her true passions lie. On any given day, you'll find her at home playing with her son, but in her spare time, she's trying her hand at playing the ukulele or attempting to teach herself to sew. She has survived multiple suicide attempts over a decade of physical and emotional abuse. Rachel has stared down. the monster that is opiate addiction, along with hospitalizations from complications of IV drug use, an acrimonious divorce, and a custody dispute with a domestic abuser, and has emerged the victor at every turn. So with that, let's meet Rachel.
1: So can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Um, Sure. So, uh, well, I am a single mom of a little boy, he's two and a half, um... I ha- I was born here in Boise, Idaho, and uh, I moved out of the state twice, but primarily just here. I've been married and divorced in the past three years, so um, I'm an actress. At least I try to be in the small commu- film community we have here. That's great. And uh I guess what I should probably talk about what, what the subject is. I am I am a recovering opiate addict, recovered, I would say. Probably it's been um May 2018, so from May 2 years plus however many months from May. Sober.
2: Well, congratulations on your sobriety. Thank you. Can you tell me a little bit about, about how you grew up? Uh
1: yeah, I uh you know, I grew up it's pretty basic, I think, for most people in Idaho. I grew up with both my parents, were married. Um we didn't have very much money. But um, you know, we always had Christmas and we always had food. So uh I um was raised in a christian church a non-denominational christian church um mm-hmm. i left in high school and um i don't i don't know is there something specific about that you want?
2: No i'm just kind of curious how you grew up and how it influenced like who you are today gotcha. it sounds like you had a pretty normal childhood and
1: um you know it was it, it wasn't the healthiest My mom had her own uh, childhood of, you know, sort of this generational trauma of physical and emotional abuse. And when she had us, uh, she did a really good job of sort of ending a lot of those unhealthy habits, but some of those um, emotionally abusive habits and patterns seeped into my childhood that we ended up with. With my addiction and the challenges it caused, not just me, but the whole family, sort of working on uh, dismantling those last ones. And now, hopefully with my son, we won't be passing on any of that stuff. So, like, That's great. When I was about a teenager, I think my mom was actually the first person to get involved and celebrate recovery to sort of get a handle on how to handle any of it because they didn't know.
2: Yeah, she mentioned that Celebrate Recovery was really helpful for her um, to kind of open her eyes and also to help her heal from some of her childhood trauma right. and get comfortable with vulnerability, which is really a hard thing to do.
1: Uh, and I think, you know, it, it doesn't, Celebrate Recovery and the 12 steps, NA, NA, AA, those things have never really worked for me. Uh, mm -hmm. But something about it made her um, understand, I think, addiction and like that it was more of a, 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 an illness than like a moral failing, you know, so so, um, that kind of helped her reach that point.
2: Well, you mentioned you're a recovering addict for t- or 10 years of active recovery, which is a really long time. Uh, when did things first start um, progressing for you? How did you start using drugs and how did it progress from there?
1: So I took my first shot of alcohol when I was 12 with my mm-hmm. brother and sister, my older brother and sister. And so I drank in high school and smoked, uh, started smoking weed probably junior year of high school and um I didn't really get into anything too heavy until um after high school but the drinking had exposed me to some other trauma some sexual traumas Oh, sorry oh it's okay um so but those those things so I mentioned the church because I our youth group taught us, you know, that it was really important to, to wait until you are married to have sex. And so when I was actually about 13 or 14, I had gotten drunk and blacked out and was raped at a party. And I didn't actually realize that if you're passed out from drinking and someone has sex with you, that that's rape. So I thought that I had had sex. And it was definitely my fault for drinking, and I don't really know. And it wasn't until way, way later that I realized, like, learned even what consent was. So that was like that sort of the beginning of the end, I guess, or I don't know, the beginning mm-hmm. of this like journey into being ruined, being no good, not deserving. Um, okay so I, you're sorry what sorry you're that? talking about you're
2: talking about your mindset that you thought you were ruined and no good right
1: um I don't know if you've ever heard like the analogies some like youth pastors will use at different churches this I've heard it across all denominations but you know your virginity is like a piece of bubble gum you're like a piece of bubble gum and when you get taken out of your wrapper and chewed up and then spit out, no one wants to chew that piece of bubble gum again. And so that was how I viewed myself as a piece of chewed up. Oh gosh, gum. that must have been so hard. So, um, and yeah, and because it had happened in such a way, someone I didn't like at all, I kind of found repugnant and gross. Uh, my sister was just so angry with me and. She has her, her own issues, uh, but, uh, about it was her boyfriend. Um, I felt like a very messed up piece of gum at like 14. So, oh man, that, that sort of started it for this, this medicating pain. Okay. Anyway.
2: So then you got out of high school and what happened from there? Um, I,
1: I ended up making friends with a group of boys that were all about three years older than me. And, um, I think it was like 16, 17. So it was right before I got out of high school. I, I would go hang out with them all the time and get high. Uh we just smoked down like a lot and, uh, they made a joke like we're going to make you our little stoner sister. And uh, they did. And so when I, right when I graduated, they all got an apartment where they lived together and quit, incidentally all started dealing all sorts of drugs out of that apartment, cocaine, ecstasy, primarily, and weed. And so I actually started out then I tried ecstasy and, you know, the, the stuff that they teach you in high school with like D.A.R.E. Or, like with all the drugs, is like the second you touch it, something really bad's gonna happen. Well, I, I did ecstasy, and then when I woke up the next day, and nothing really bad had happened, and nothing really bad had ever happened for me smoking weed or, you know, it did with me drinking, but drinking's legal, and that doesn't have the same stigma that hard, you know, illicit yeah. drugs have. And so when I, uh, nothing bad happened after I had tried this second illicit drug. I'm like, I think I've been lied to about all of it, you know? And so then all of it became, came fair play. Mm-hmm. And so uh, for a really long time, I did a lot of ecstasy and cocaine with those guys. And um the cocaine had actually initiated sort of uncovered a lot of underlying issues and I started to have panic attacks pretty frequently <laughs> and they were so mm-hmm. intense. I, I didn't I couldn't identify them as panic attacks either. I just thought something was seriously wrong. And so I ended up going to the hospital like eleven times in one year. And so I found a GP who finally was able to tell me they're having anxiety and uh He, I think with the best of intentions, put me on a milligram of controlled release out which is Xanax, and then an as-needed prescription of Xanax. And over the course of years, that prescription got bumped all the way up to 12 milligrams of Xanax I was taking a day and um, 10 milligrams of Suboxone from one prescriber. And that doctor actually ended up getting arrested. Oh, wow. So a little bit of bad luck, along with some major misinformation and bad choices. And then uh, discovering opiates, not only numbed my anxiety, but the deep, deep pain that I had. And then I've been diagnosed with major depressive disorder, which means you get depressed just kind of for no reason at all. Sometimes nothing can happen and you get into that. And I it was like a cure-all for everything and I, I just was hooked from there. Hooked on opiates. Yeah. And benzodiazepines, I guess I should say. But you know, that yeah. that's always been more clinical. It was never uh I never abused them. I just uh I got at twelve milligrams is like astronomical. Yeah. So um but I, I was still taking them in a really clinical sense at a, in a therapeutic way. The opiates were the mm-hmm. thing that I, on top of taking the benzodiazepines, that I went to abuse to numb out other things.
2: Did you get the opiates from your friends or from an actual doctor? I, my GP
1: did prescribe me buprenorphine, uh, which is suboxone without the naloxone in it. And naloxone is that blocker that keeps you from getting high on other opiates. So I had buprenorphine mm-hmm. from a GP who is now no longer practicing. Um, and then, yeah, opiates just from different, I wouldn't necessarily say friends, but yeah, drug friends. Yeah,
2: getting them on the street versus getting them from a doctor. Correct,
1: yeah. And how long
2: did you... Um, do opiates before it caused a problem in your life.
1: Um I'm trying to think. The the first real issue or like shit really hit the fan, excuse me. Um, you're you're good. <laughs> was I I don't remember when it was, but I was like young twenties, I think. And I had started shooting up, and the place that I was shooting up at was pretty dirty. Like, they didn't keep it very clean there. And I'm actually really not sure what happened. So all the friends there that were there, we had each used our own needle. And um, we all got really sick, but I got sicker than everybody else. Um, No one could really walk. We were just vomiting nonstop. Um, and then that night I, I started vomiting and I just lost control of my bladder and I could just feel my body like start to shut down. And I, I looked at my friend, I said, if I don't go to the hospital right now, I'm going to die. And so I, uh, he helped me like crawl. We were so sick and we were, so we were crawling into the house to find a cell phone. We didn't want to call an ambulance because we were really scared, you know, that, that would mean the costs would come. And so I just called a cab and took a cab down to Saint Saint Luke's downtown. And I was hospitalized for three days with septicemia, I think. So they call it. Oh wow. And it's just uh, basically like where your own you you got an infection in your blood. And mm-hmm. they'd pretty much done everything for me at that point that they could do. And said, "Now, like, she just has to either, like, heal or she may not, and may not pull through. And that was the first, like, wake up call I had.
2: And you were in Idaho when this happened? Yes. So was your family around or aware of what was going, what you were going through at this time? Or were you hiding it from them? Um,
1: I was hiding it from them. And actually, so I told the doctors, even not to tell my mom how this happened, you know, I I didn't want them to disclose the cause of it. And mm-hmm. So they had to try to talk to her about my diet, like what was going on without telling her. And because this, it really wasn't her realm of, you know, her world at all. She really couldn't put it together. And then the only reason she ended up finding out about it was because our insurance declined to pay for the medical bill. Because it was caused by illegal activities, and she got that explanation oh. of benefits in the mail. What was that like for you when she found out? Um, initially uh, at the beginning, not good. Um, but I think I think she sort of, you know, cause she she'd get scared, so then she'd get angry, and her anger always very much annoyed me, and um, but then when she did sort of calm down and said, I, I want to help you. Uh, then she was going with me to this like and like, the doctor, you know, and the clinic. And the more she learned about addiction, so that's why I say CR helped a lot. Um, so the more she learned about it, the more understanding she became to try and help me get clean instead of being angry mm-hmm. because i mean i that's why i had, i didn't want her to be mad or or sad or scared well you must
2: have been a little a bit of those yourself a little sad a little scared oh yeah after going through something like
1: that that was pretty scary um you think it would be scary enough to get my shit together but it, <laughs> it took a couple other tries too couple other hospital visits or what, what, what do you mean oh, by tries? So no, not after that, after that, I would just get, it would get really bad. I would just sort of like, I don't know what it would be like one, one time in LA when I was shooting up, like I was shooting up and I just had a vision of myself OD in the bathroom and realizing like that this was the last place people were going to find me. And this was like how they were going to find me and I didn't like mm-hmm. it and I didn't want that. And so then, you know, I had relapsed, but I was always actively seeking to get sober again. And I was always mm-hmm. planning on it too, you know, like I'm okay. I'm going to give myself 30 days and then I'm going to go to the clinic or I'm going to start cutting down and doing less and less until I'm tapered off. And you're talking about um, when you say you shot up, you're talking about heroin. Yeah. Um, actually, oh, okay. like, cause you, you know, you can shoot up pretty much anything. Yeah. Okay. So we, I've shot up pills, uh, like dilated and oxycodone and stuff. Okay.
2: Yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> that you could, I mean, I knew that you could shoot up like meth and whatnot, but I didn't know about the prescription prescription drugs.
1: Yeah. And they, you know, they've tried, they kind of have put it's really stupid, and I under it's again well intentioned. They've put in safety measures like things that'll cause the pill to gel up in water if you try to shoot it up. But of course, mm-hmm. then there's always workarounds. Like some, there's always someone who's ingenuitive enough to like find a way around that. So you know, then you gotta microwave it. You, you know, I don't even know exactly what the steps are, and I've always mm-hmm. had help. uh, shooting up. So, uh, I don't know exactly what, but I know that people have found ways around that too. Okay. So, but yeah, you, you can pretty much shoot up anything.
2: And while you were going through these different, um, attempts at recovery, were you in treatment at all for your mental health or was that always untreated except for with the drugs?
1: Um, yeah, I would be in and out of it. Um, Like I said, the the desire was always kind of there to, like, figure out what was going on, like, to, you just, when you're in it, you don't picture it as being your life forever, you know? Mm -hmm. It's just a phase right now. I'm going to fix this. I'm going to fix my health and everything. But a a little bit later, you kind of put it off. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. um. I would get maybe a little motivation from one thing or another to try to get help with my mental health or, uh, it it actually coincided with a very abusive relationship that I was in. And so finally breaking out of that relationship and then finally, having to get through my divorce and become a mom was enough to make me stop saying later and start saying, now I'm done. Like I, I had to get to a point, I guess, where I, I liked myself just enough to invest the time and energy to improving my life. And when that
2: happened, were you in Idaho?
1: Yes. This happened. Okay. This happened after, well, right after my son was born and shortly before my ex husband had assaulted. So, so, what had happened was um, I was in an abusive relationship for about 10 years. And I, uh, he had cheated on me, which was the last straw out of all the abuse and stuff, the horrible things. That was too much. I couldn't that was enough. So and that was um two thousand seventeen. And that was actually my twenty seventh birthday. And so he cheated and I was like, That's it, I'm done. And I just like I washed my hands of him and I was never going back. And of course I was woefully ill prepared for just being single and ready, you know, confident. So I immediately jumped into the next relationship I that I found, you know, mm. and, uh, he seemed perfect. Like it was like, Oh my gosh, my life is totally like all this bad stuff happened for a reason because I'm here now with him and he's so perfect. And I didn't actually, I had never heard the word narcissist or like I had, but not like narcissistic abuse was like really foreign to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't really know what love bombing was because that just wasn't the way it worked with my prior boyfriend. So with Matt, he just seemed perfect. And then um, we started dating. We we were both recovered, right? Like I was like two months clean at that point. I left the ex. I decided to get clean at the same time. So I went through actually like a cold turkey detox and I had like three months of sobriety, and I met, that's when I met Matt, and he had just gotten out of prison, and he was really focused on sobriety. He had posted something about taking a hike up to Stack Rock, and I was like, that's what I want to do. That's, that's the kind of stuff I want to start doing, and so I messaged him, and we started talking, and um, hanging out, and of course, then we started reliving old war stories from using Mm -hmm. and selling drugs, and He's like, I want to know what it's like to use a few just once, ah. <laughs> And so we're like, yeah, look, we can use together just one time. That'll work. <laughs> and I did it. Yeah. A, wait, but I, so I ended up getting married and everything seemed good. Uh, when I found out I was pregnant, I didn't stop shooting up. I um, immediately went, not immediately. I started buying Suboxone strips from his friend that he, uh, works with and does a lot of business with. And so we both started getting subox in that way. And it still wasn't good enough for me not to tell my doctors that my son was being exposed to it. So about four months in my pregnancy, I just I thought I don't care if they take him from me. I just want him to be healthy. You know. Like I got I stopped being so scared of what those repercussions because his health was more important and um I found that actually, like the clinic was pretty accepting of the fact that I was pregnant, and you know they just me put me on my dose and started me that way, but um so then, from that point, i had I was using the opioid maintenance therapy to not use mm-hmm. and and the last time that I did use was with Matt and I was six weeks postpartum. And, um, he said, I have a surprise for you. And I'm like, okay, like pretty, you know, cause I'm just, uh, thinking that it's something kind of romantic and we are going to go home and be alone for the weekend. And I was apt to take care of my newborn. And, um, he pulled out like I probably a gram of heroin and two rigs, and said like, "Here." He's like, "I know you didn't want to have, said you didn't want to have sex because it hurt." So I got us this, and I was like, Uh, oh, I cannot say no <laughs> Like, being a new mom was so scary, and it's true. I did not want to have sex because I had just pushed a baby out, and I was like, "Nothing else is ever going through there again." <laughs> and so, um. I thought, yeah, that that guy—that actually sounds kind of good. So um, then I got high with him that night, and then, me—not even like a month later—he assaulted me while he was high on meth. Cause so I've never done meth. I—I've I've always been like a downer person, but he—he he was high on meth, and he had assaulted me, and I had already reached the point of done physical violence, physical abuse against me, you know? So Mm -hmm. it just took that one incident for me to say, nope, like, again, I'm done. Like I, I want better. (laughs) And so, um, I don't know that I had the intention of staying clean forever, uh, at first. And then as we were going through the custody battle he, so all of a sudden this total, the person I was married to kind of died that night. (laughs) That's the only way I've been able to process it because that personality, that person was totally created for me and me alone. And so then this other person came out, you know, out of the wings fighting me for my baby. If I was going to leave him and I was, because I, my a very good friend said to me, Rachel, how often do you know of a girl who crosses that plane of physical violence in a relationship only once and then it never happens again? I was like, damn it, you're right. Oh. At that point, then I decided to file for a protection order. I still had quite made up my mind about getting divorced. But like literally a week after that, he moved a girlfriend and started doing just really crazy stuff. So I was like, okay, I'm done. And so I had wrote out an affidavit to the judge about what had happened. I was really, I had done research on what what you needed for a custody battle. And the number one rule was don't lie to your attorney. The number two rule was don't lie to your family court judge. And I was like, oh, okay. So I wrote out the affidavit and I admitted to, you know, all the drug use we had done together, the use after my son was born. And um the illicit suboxone use while I was pregnant and where I was at when I submitted the affidavit. And he countered it with an affidavit that was just patently untrue. It was it was daunting. I didn't know how I was gonna deal with that. And I think even my family court judge, so she said to both of us, she's like, At this point, you both have hurled, you know, multiple accusations at each other. Um, I'm not Certain that either of you are fit to be a parent to this baby, and it just like shot chills up my back, and I like I I was so freaked out. Like it dawned on me, like it all became really real at that exact moment. Like oh my gosh, they could take him, and he would go somewhere like wherever I, you know, out of my, I would not be his mom, (laughs) and Mm -hmm. I did it. I was done at that point. Well, I'm glad that you reached that conclusion. Yeah. And I, I, so I I just, I wanted a better life for him initially, but I had, I have been getting help. So I'd actually started to go see this counselor because Matt and I were having problems that I was just conveniently ignoring and thinking that counseling could fix it. So she was not taking on couples, but she would take me on and then refer me out to see a couples therapist. And I started seeing her literally like a week and uh, maybe two sessions before the assault had happened. And so she she's literally been with me now for the entirety of, from the assault to up to this day, which was June 12th, 2018. And so I decided to just see her religiously, like whatever the problems are, that's causing me to be, a, end up in abusive relationships that is causing me to stick needles in my body and end up hospitalized. That's causing me to, you know, attempt to kill myself and endanger myself in all these ways. Like, I want to know what that is. And I am really going to give it just one last itch full effort to fix it uh, and then give up and succumb to that lifestyle, you know mm-hmm. So because I think there's a point everybody hits that's an act of addiction where you don't really want to be using it anymore. It's not really it is a choice. you know a lot of people are like, oh, it's your choice. It is a choice in the beginning, but if at a certain point, if it stops being your choice. It's very You're very much under the control of a substance, and sometimes, especially for girls like a significant other. So you know your dealer, if you've you know borrowed you know you owe them three, four, five hundred dollars, and then you're paying them off you know fifty and a hundred at a time. So you start to you start to actually get owned by a lot of people mm-hmm and so um there was a point for that <laughs> I guess just saying is like, it it stops being a choice and so for a long time I've wanted to get away from it but I just haven't known how you know yeah and I don't I don't I don't anticipate using it at all in the future, but I have stopped saying I will never do something again because I said that about pretty much everything that I've done in my life. <gasps> uh, mm-hmm. But so I don't know. And being a single mom and really wanting a good life for my son and being an active heroin addict um, sounds exhausting. <laughs> yeah (laughs) it's literally not possible I don't think maybe it is but I couldn't pull it off Not with the type of lifestyle that I'd like to maintain for him
2: so in the end did you end up quitting cold turkey or did you have a treatment program
1: um no actually so uh, when after my doctor had gotten arrested for selling drugs illicitly prescription drugs illicitly and this is like a matter of public record. He was an evil doctor. His name is Dr. Minus. And um, he uh, was writing out prescriptions for money. And So uh, after he'd gotten arrested, uh, I tried to do everything cold turkey and ended up in Anner Mountain like, with a suicide attempt or feeling suicidal ideations and a plan. And so then I was able to actually get a proper psychiatrist who um, put me on a proper dose of benzodiazepines. And but because I stayed on the benzodiazepines, once I wasn't pregnant any longer, the clinic was like, "We're not going to treat you if you use the benzos still." And I told them I am—I have no intention of discontinuing my pencil at this point, you know. And so it was pretty much—I uh, had to quit. I had to start—start start my. Uh, very rapid taper at the opioid maintenance therapy. So they did some good, but they also don't take you off very well either. It's definitely not on your terms that you come off of it. Oh, that sounds really hard. Yeah.
2: So how much um, did your family play a role in you in, in you quitting using? Oh,
1: well, they've been integral probably because I mean, just not just in the quitting using drugs, but it actually really breaks my heart to think about any mom who has to get divorced, that has to parent try to get away from domestic violence, try to discontinue drug use, any one of those things without my parents' support, I would have failed. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe I, I would have been able to really dig deep and utilize the community resources, the sparse resources that are available but mm-hmm. i don't I don't think so. it would have been just just anyone would have been an astronomical task, but one on top of the other, I really don't know how I would have gotten here to this point, so they have been absolutely required pretty much I mean it i would i I don't want to say it can't be done because I'm sure there are women who are just amazing that do it. But for me, I don't think it could have been done without them.
2: What was the biggest hurdle in your recovery?
1: Probably dealing with emotional pain because it really does manifest itself for me physically. And I think that's the appeal with the opiate is it kills off a lot of that physical pain that makes it so hard to function in regular society, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, how to deal with that stuff every day to get out of bed and eat, shower and, you know, that Mm -hmm. that's, uh, I mean, that's something I still struggle with like today. So, um, and then part of it was you know my friends ha- like all my friends use it. i always talk about leaving Boise because it's it's not small here but it's definitely not big either mm-hmm. and if i meet someone new like i if i want to join a new crowd they're still going to know somebody who knows somebody who knows all about the stuff i've done you know yeah and that, so that makes it hard too That makes sense. What tools do you use to maintain your mental health and sobriety now? Well, so I think that was really where my, my mom does come in. I I stay pretty accountable to her to go to my counseling appointments and um, what tools do I use? I just, I don't know. I don't really have one, a good answer for that. I, I really just decided I wanted my son to have a better life than mm-hmm. what I was going, what I was heading towards. Getting him. Well,
2: it sounds like therapy is the tool that you lean on right now, primarily, and your and your mom. It
1: is. Yeah, I have a I have a psychiatrist who's very, um, understanding and trust trustworthy. Or I guess he, we have a good, very good relationship that. He trusts me to be on a controlled substance still because I've never abused it particularly so I actually am still on an anti-anxiety medication and I need that I need that mm-hmm. so um I'm lucky to have a doctor who understands that just because I abused one thing doesn't mean I'm going to abuse everything and um so I guess med management and then I have a, a counselor separate from that who Helps me process life, <laughs> so good. and then um, yeah, my mom is just a big resource for me as far as parenting and setting goals and continuing that forward motion of like not later but right now, doing it now, taking the steps now that'll improve my life. That'll make it better because that's what I deserve and getting to that point, believing that that's what I deserve. Yeah.
2: You've been through quite a journey.
1: You know, if I, if I did sit down and tell you all the stories, like I, I've got a lot of really good war stories about drug use and stuff, but but we'd probably be here for a couple hours. And (laughs) um, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know how much it helps. I mean, I, I've done it all. I've heard it all. I have, I personally have not stolen from my family money or other items, but I have watched friends, you know, steal and taken them to pawn priceless items and all sorts of things. So there's definitely no judgment and I'm definitely not, I don't. It's it's kind of weird. To, like, I feel like you have to have, have share a little bit of that, like, just so to lend me some credibility that I do know what actual full blown act addiction is and what actual full blown detoxing is. And I've been in both, and then I don't know. Uh, it is, you know. It's it's funny because even talking to you and I'm trying to think about, it, I, I wish I had a really great answer to give someone like that. My story would help other people. But Mm -hmm. um, just, I guess if I had to say anything or, you know, it's just that later that plan that you have for getting clean needs to be now, you know, and what's it going to take for you to believe you're good enough for it to happen right now.
0: Mhm-hmm
1: yeah, i i don't i've I've been really lucky that I've avoided any sort of like criminal litigation for my drug ad- addiction, and um, I don't know the war on drugs. I think it's kind of a war on all of us, but um I just when I talk to friends who are still using and struggling, I don't really admonish them or try to tell them how. They have to do it, but just all the ways that they, like, ask them what their dream life looks like, and then I'll sit in that daydream with them for a while, and then tell them all the ways that I know they're a good person, and they deserve that dream life now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think that that's
2: awesome and you kind of skirted along to my last question, which was what advice would you give someone who's thinking about starting their recovery? Um, but do you have any final thoughts or anything else you want to leave before we close things up? I
1: said, I don't like AA and I don't like NA, but I don't ever want to discourage anyone from seeking anything that gives them a sorts, even if they don't like it, if they get a sense of community from it or, you know, whatever. But, um, I guess what advice I would give to anybody is to the to the families like reach like families do have to start learning about it, and mm-hmm. we have to remove the stigma of it. And like to addicts, mm-hmm. to say it's it's not a moral failing. Like it's definitely not. You know, our society is very heels dug in with blaming addicts for this when it's really, um, an illness and it, it might start out with a choice, but it it definitely isn't like that for very long. You know, Mm -hmm. So I I don't really know, uh, just to picture what your dream life looks like. And then really just imagine that as long as you can sit in that daydream. And then try to use your head and logic and your objective part of your mind to come up with all of the reasons why you're not the world's worst person and you actually Mm -hmm. deserve that life. And then you know all the action steps you need to take to make it happen, and you deserve it, and that hard work that it takes is for you, and um you deserve it everyone everyone deserves to be happy and healthy and safe and what's funny is like i I will ask people like, you know think of." Just like, like a person you kind of really don't like very much—not someone you hate, but just you don't like them. Again, under your skin, they've never really done anything to you, but you're just not your cup of tea. But yeah. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you have a basic idea of what they deserve, right? Like they're not a bad person, and you—you know—if you saw them s- struggling from a death and of the family or a loss of some sort, you would feel empathy for them, and you would never want to see them homeless, and you would never want to see them incarcerated, and you would never want to see them sick. And if you can see that for a person who really doesn't mean that much to you, but you have this idea that they have these basic human rights, why don't they apply to you? You know? Mm -hmm. And... If human rights apply to everyone they apply to everyone you included you know um like you deserve to be happy too you just because you make mistakes and you have flaws does not mean you are should be doomed to a life of self-punishment well said so um i and it's it's all really easily said; it's much harder done. And I do know that, like, it's a, it's a uphill yeah. battle. But if you make it through, realize you actually are pretty amazing, and you can survive anything. Awesome! That's a really good advice. Hope so. <laughs>
2: well, that's all I got for you, Rachel. Thanks for coming on my show. Yeah, no problem.
1: Thanks so much, Shannon, for having me and being so accommodating in my schedule and. I. for sure we'll get this episode out soon all right cool yeah let me know i will have a good night all right take care of you (laughs) Bye. bye